Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. It's 2021. This is episode 106. Stephen Housden, here we go. Today is Stephen Housden. Stephen Housden is regarded as one of the finest guitarists in the world, well known as guitarist for Little River Band for more than two decades. He's also played and recorded with such music legends as Warren Zevon, Glenn Fry, Dr. John, Christopher Cross, John Entwistle from The Who, Renee Geyer, Albert Lee, Steve Cropper, The Seekers, Noel Redding, Marsha Hines, John Farnham, The Bushwhackers and many, many others. Born in the UK, Stephen was inspired to play the guitar by watching Singing Cowboys on television as a child. After moving to Australia at the age of eight, he quickly discovered rock and roll and fell under the magic of such lead guitarists as Hank B. Marvin and Chuck Berry. He formed his first band in high school. Hendrix and jazz great Wes Montgomery became influences as Stephen worked hard on learning as much technique as he could while also striving to develop his own distinctive style. That style brought him to the attention of some of Australia's most successful recording acts, and over the coming years, Stephen was highly sought after as a band member and recording session player. In 1981, Stephen was asked to join one of the world's most successful acts, Little River Band, as their lead guitarist. Since then, he's toured the world many times over with them and co-written many of their songs. Over the years, Stephen has conducted music theory and improvisational seminars for guitarists and written columns for magazines such as Sonics and Australian Musician. He's also toured schools with his highly successful one-man show, The Evolution of Rock Guitar. In the late 90s, Stephen and his family moved to Ireland. Long inspired by Irish music, Stephen now enjoys the opportunity to play with some of Ireland's top musicians as well as writing and recording with his various groups and his solo music. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mr. Stephen Housden. All right, I think we're rolling. Stephen Housden, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Very happy to be here. I've been listening to your stuff. and. Growing up in Sydney, it's fantastic to hear some of the stuff from my old friends and uh, people like Harry Bruce and Jim Kelly, my brother, uh, and others. I've listened to even people that I've not met yet, but it's great to hear their stories and uh, and it takes me back and and fills me in with some of the things that I didn't know. Stuff about Harry I didn't know. He's yeah. done so much, hasn't he? It's amazing. You know that's that's funny. You mentioned I've, I've had quite a few people say to me that they listened to Harry's and and there was a whole bunch of stuff they didn't know about Harry. Yeah, He's a mysterious yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he did so much what? so young. You know, like yeah, you know, yeah. I, he, he's not that much older than me. He's only a year or two older than me. And um, when he was sixteen, he was doing stuff that I was dreaming of. You know, 
Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. The story about how he developed his um his bass slapping technique, that's hilarious. Yeah, I asked I him because he's got that unique style with the shake of the hand, and he said he was on yeah. acid and he was just slapping the water and slapping the water in the bath. <laughs> he was oh. mad for the practice. When I was on tour with him and, and Renee Gaye, you know, we'd always go past his hotel room and you could hear him slapping away you know, all day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. So you're in uh, you're in Ireland, and yeah. I'm in Sydney, and it's it's uh, ten past nine here in Sydney on a Sunday morning. And it's about 10 past 10 in Ireland on Saturday. Is that right? That's right, yes. Yep. It doesn't seem like a Saturday night at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, things have yeah. changed. Yeah. Can I ask, uh, I mean, because I, I don't, I mean, we're kind of living in our little sort of COVID bubble here in um, Australia at the moment. What's what's the, the effect COVID's had on, on Ireland? Well, it's... Pretty devastating. It's it's terrible for the music industry, you know. Yeah. And um, to couple that, <laughs> the Brexit thing is not very good either. You know, I was just reading in the paper this morning, like, you know, English musicians who would normally be touring Europe, it's going to be a big deal for them to go now, visas and all this sort of stuff, you know, and plus Irish musicians and European musicians going to England. So there's that. And the COVID thing is, yeah, there's... The last gig I did actually was um, in Australia when I played uh, with Barry Leaf at Tim Partridge's 70th birthday and um, that was in February and um, two months later he died, which was came as a real shock to us. But, Mm. yeah, people hear us, you know, people hear us suffering and and, uh, I feel bad for the pubs especially, you know, like the pubs have been closed for forever and then they they say oh you can open for a while and you know and they've done they've done sort of well a lot of the pubs have been running um you know online streaming live streaming stuff and that now they're getting a little bit of government support but it must be really tough you know because that's an environment that's definitely shut because people get drunk and talk really loud and spit at each other and <laughs> so it, it's you know it it can't be open, so mm. it's a shame. And, and the pub uh, life here is, you know, we we have like acoustic sessions where we just get down just for the fun of it, you know, and sit around in a circle and um, and play. So all, all that's out. We're, we're sort of missing um, playing with each other mm. as musicians. Mm. What's what's been upsetting here for you know a lot of the the musicians is, pardon me, um, governments have put really, really tight restrictions on the pubs and the clubs and stuff like that regarding patrons and no singing, no, you can't dance, you have to sit down, you have to be spaced. Mm. Yet they're still holding these big sporting events. We've got the cricket in a couple of days, you know, 40,000 people packing into a stadium and and they're standing and they're yelling and they're screaming and, you know, it's a bit of a double standard if you ask me. The sports have always had it, always had it over the musicians. I think, yeah, in some ways, yeah, you know, the the big crowds go to the sports, and yeah. always, you know, yeah. Now, the first time I heard of Stephen Housden, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this gentleman, but um, a guy named Billy Ryland, and the backstory there to Billy Ryland, um, to me, the link, the link to me is Billy and my father Murray. Taylor lived on the same street in Taita in 
um, in the Hutt Valley in New Zealand. And they grew up together. Wow. They grew up together. Um, wow. Yeah. And then Billy moved to Australia and uh, we sort of carried on with our lives. And then they reconnected um, late 80s, early 90s, I think it was. And um, dad came over to Sydney um, for a holiday to catch up with family and stuff and met up with Billy. And Billy gave um, dad this uh, cassette tape of a demo, a demo tape. And dad brought it home and he gave it to me. And um, I can't remember how many songs were on that demo tape, but dad said to me, there's one song on there, the guitarist from Little River Band's on it. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, wow, cool, because I love Little River Band. And um, I used to set my drums up and play along to Little River Band cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that was pretty cool. And, and um, yeah, when I, when I heard that song, I, I instantly knew that that was the song he was talking about. And right. the, yeah, the name of the song is um, um, "If You Don't Want My Love, um, You Can Have My Money." And um, right. I, I tried to get hold of Billy yesterday, but he hasn't replied yet. So I'm still going to try and track right. that song down. And, um, yeah, so that was that's that's the first time I heard of you. And then um, right. yeah, and then um, yeah. So tell tell me how you you met Billy and and so, so um. Yeah, we had a small band. We were living in Caring Bar and uh, Malcolm Wakeford was the drummer and we, we met at school, you know, when we were about 14 and, and played with bands together on and off until I joined Little River Band. And um, anyway, we we wanted to get an organist in the band. We thought the Hammond organ was incredible sound, you know, for the time. It still is, you know, ranging from psychedelic stuff to soul stuff solely sort of stuff and uh, anyway we, we so we put an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald Herald and uh, Garth Porter who was to become the organist from Sherbet calls calls us or we call him I can't remember which way around it was and he says look I think I've got this gig and which was going to be Sherbet which was going to be a huge band but they weren't then mm-hmm. uh, he said but come in anyway you know so um, we came in and um, when we got there, you know, he said, oh, I've got this gig, you know, and it's a great one. But me and my friend Bill, and you know, and which is Bill Ryland. So we got to meet Bill and we, we had a bit of a play together and, and Bill was working with Stevie Wright from the Easy Beats. He'd just come back from England. The Easy Beats had split up and he, was, he formed a band called Ratchet. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, Bill said to me, I'll, I'll try and get you in the band because he liked my playing, you know. So, so that's how I met Bill, you know. And, and Bill, we, we got on really well. He, t- he turned me on to a whole bunch of new stuff. He was, into, um, he was into things like Poco, you know, the band Poco, and they had all this funky stuff. And Bill had a certain funky way of playing, which I hadn't encountered before. So... I was, uh, yeah, learning stuff off Bill and it was a great time. But it was sheer fluke, as is everything in life, you know, <laughs> That's it, okay. how you meet people and get gigs and things like that. Yeah. Do you, do you remember those, do you remember that recording session, recording those demos with, with Bill? I've heard the demo, you know. I, yeah. I had it here. I think I've got it on cassette or something. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had the I, cassette, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I, I thought I'd had it on a hard drive, but I mustn't have duplicated over mm. and I think I know 
I know the one you mean. I think so. Yeah. But I, I can't remember playing them. I can't remember a lot <laughs> yeah. of stuff. It's so, it's so yeah. long ago. Yeah, you know? that's it. That's it. But, um, but I know when I hear it, it's me and how I played at that time, you know. Yeah. I, th- I think I was very influenced at the time when we did it by Amos Garrett. And uh, Amos Garrett had done the solo on The Midnight at the Oasis uh, by uh, Maria Maldur. Mm-hmm. That was back in around 74. And I was like, oh, everyone was blown out with this playing. He was doing like double bends, two strings at a time and all this sort of stuff. And um, and uh, I think if it's a solo you're talking about, it's very influenced by that. Mm. Very good. Let's Flip it right back now to how it all began, and you—you you were born in um, in Bedfordshire in the UK. Yeah, I was born in Bedford, the, the main town in Bedfordshire, and um, in 1959 we emigrated to Australia, and um, and uh, I think you know I'd, I'd I'd always wanted to go to America because that's where all the cowboys. And Indians and <laughs> everyone in the everyone in the fifties was into that sort of thing, you know. Like England was kind of like black and white, you know, <laughs> like like a black and white movie. It was all fog and overcast, and you always saw these movies of these guys riding horses and maybe playing a guitar or something, and bright, beautiful sky, you know. Yeah, but Australia was pretty much similar anyway, you know. It has beautiful open blue skies and when we arrived in Australia, you know, it was like unbelievable. It was like being on holidays but right. the holiday just kept going, you know. I had the exact same feeling because we obviously born in New Zealand. We moved out here in 1994 and um, up to that point I'd never left uh, the North Island of New Zealand. I'd never been on a plane, never crossed over to the South Island. Yeah. You know, m- m- all my family had come back to – Australia for holidays and stuff. And to me, it was when we left, it was like a holiday. You know, we, le- <laughs> we left Wellington. It was yeah. 15 degrees and then the, the, the doors opened at Sydney Airport. It was 38 degrees. Yeah. It's like you punched oh, in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, you know, we, we ended up in Cronulla for a little while and, I was, you know, we were walking along the beach and I always remember that feeling. It's like, blimey, this is amazing, you know, because like, yeah. Bedford's in the middle of the – uh, country, you know, there's no sea or anything like that. Right. And to be walking along by the sea, yeah, it's great. Do you have, do you have memories of like because um, you left, you would have been what eight, about eight, 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 about eight, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember that that time in the UK fondly? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember much at all. You know, I know, um, I know, I wanted to play guitar even like when I was five. You know, I, me- I remember. It was probably to do with the cowboy movies or something, and maybe Elvis, because Elvis came out in '56 or, or around then, a bit before actually. But um, I can remember, you know, hearing "Rock Around the Clock" and stuff like that, just coming out. And but my hands were too small for a guitar, and my parents bought me a ukulele, which I, you know, learned a few, I learned like little melodies on it and stuff. But um, when I got a little bit older, I think I forgot it all for a while, but when we moved to Australia and I was about nine, then the whole thing came back. I, I really want this guitar. I really want a guitar. I want a guitar. And um, 
and there wasn't like a lot of music shops in those days. In there just wasn't, you know. And there was a guitar in the sports store window in Cronulla, and um, it was ten pounds or something. And my my parents said, um, "If you save up your pocket money every week, we'll buy it for you for your birthday." You know. So I saved up for you know about six months, and my birthday came, and I got this guitar, and it's like wow. <laughs> And I, for some reason, I actually thought that I'd just be able to play it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ever the optimist. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't. And I, oh, I've got to learn, like, now, now. Yeah. You know, and uh, the next day we went out and there was one guitar teacher that lived nearby and, and he was from Holland. He said, look, I'm going, moving back to Holland, but I'll teach you before I go, and I think I took about two, two or three lessons a week or something, and I just learnt chords, lots of chords, and uh, got got my hands around the guitar, you know. So um, I, I didn't at the time. I didn't really think about playing lead or anything. I didn't. I just I just wanted to play whatever, you know. And I played chords. My mum played accordion, and Dad sang, and they they had a duo. They would do clubs on the weekends. Dad had a day job. He was a painter and a paper hanger. And mum was going out to work at the time too and they were saving for a house, you know, and um, and working on the weekends. So, you know, I sort of, I thought, maybe, mum, can you, you can teach me. She said, no, I can't play guitar. <laughs> so, so I went out and had these lessons and, and then he went back to Holland and I had another teacher and by then I'd sort of, I'd saw someone, someone else. Not many kids had guitars. No, nobody my age had a guitar, you know. But I saw an older kid, and he had a guitar, and he started playing a melody. I thought, "Blimey, how can he know to pick the, the strings with his right hands that his left hand is pressing down?" I thought it was amazing, you know. And then soon after that, I heard the shadows, and uh, when I was eleven, for my next birthday, I got an electric guitar a little small five-watt amp, and uh, I just used to get Shadows records and um, learn as much as I could. Mm. See, I, I'd usually get... <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah you, talk, you, talk about the, you talk about Hank Marvin and the Shadows. I mean, that's, that's yourself, Jim Kelly and Harry Bruce. Yeah, Three, three of you that. guys, yeah. they're heavily influenced by, yeah. by Hank it, Marvin. It was a great way to learn because... The Shadows, like Hank Marvin is a beautiful player, you know, like he, he plays a melody and he he draws you in with the way he plays the melody, you know, and he had this together when he was about 17, which is incredible, you know. But um, I think learning to play melodies with feeling uh, was a great way to start, you know, like a lot of kids later, for them guitar is like, you know, playing as fast as possible, but... It's, uh, you know, Jim was talking about technique and there's more to technique than just playing speed, you know. There's yeah. technique and playing a melody and you could slide down to a note, slide up to a note, bend a note, use the vibrato. There's tons of ways, staccato, muting the strings with your, you know, palm of your hand, all sort of ways to play notes to, to express things, you know. And um, I think, you know, learning off Hank Marvin was was great, great place. Who else were you listening to at the time? Well, that was that was about it, really. And until um, when the Beatles came up, 
then, uh, you know, like the shadows started to kind of fade out, you know. The shadows, that time, it was actually a really fantastic time because it was the in-between time of when rock and roll started in the 50s and then Elvis went into the army and and music became a bit middle of the road for a little while and the, until the Beatles. And then the stuff that was a bit different was there was the shadows, but in America there was a whole bunch of other bands playing surf music. And I think it was a time when when the, you could be in a band uh, before you were in a band because you were backing a lead singer and it was like so-and-so and the so-and-sos. But when all this sort of garage-type surf music started, the band became a band, you know. Maybe the lead guitarist was a bit well, more well-known or whatever, but they were a band. And the Beatles were a continuation of that, you know. So I think it was a very important time in the, in rock and roll. But the Beatles came out and then the, the shadows started to be, you know, feel a little bit, oh, we're moving on towards this stuff. And and the shadows, you know, I, we didn't realise at the time, but when they were doing things like Roll Over Beethoven and um, rock and roll music, they were written by Chuck Berry. Mm-hmm. And um, back in the day there used to be this thing called the, the World Record Club and... Uh, you could join it and you get four, three albums <laughs> and, and then you'd buy an album each month if you wanted to. So the first four albums we got, one of them was Chuck Berry's Greatest Hits and then I realised, oh, right, the Beatles are playing his music. And um, and then I, I started to realise when he was doing a solo, he was kind of making it up, you know, it wasn't necessarily a set solo so that's when I started to try to improvise. I didn't know it was called improvising. I, I called it mucking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, yeah, that's, that was the start of learning to improvise, Chuck Berry, you know. And then further along the line, you know, things, it's the 60s escalated pretty fast when you, you think the shadows were in, like early 60s, 61, then 63, the Beatles was really getting known. And then there was this whole wash of bands. And by 67, you've got Hendrix, you know, like, and, and Cream. So it, it, it was in five years, things like exploded. It's, it's amazing. So there's um, a lot to listen to, lot, lots to listen to, yeah. Yeah, all right. So when, when did you start thinking that I need to get into a band for myself? Well, as, as soon as I could play, I wanted to yep. have a band, you know, but um, there, there, there wasn't many kids played and uh, like now everyone, everyone plays guitar or something, you know, but um, back then there wasn't too many. But um, my first, um, first year of high school, I uh, met up with an old friend. That he was one of the first friends I had. We moved to Cronulla. And I met him and uh, he moved away to a different suburb and then we moved to Carringborough and I went to Endeavour High School and we were all in the first year of the high school. It was when the high school opened. It's a sports school now but it was just a normal high school then. And um, Lee, Lee Harkness is his name, he... he um, walks up to me on the first day. I said, oh, wow, you know. And we got into conversation and um, 
because he'd moved back into the area. And I said, do you know anyone that plays guitar? And he said, oh, there's a guy at our church that plays, you know, and they, they have this meeting every week, you know, with young people. And I, I wasn't necessarily into that, but someone who played guitar, you know, I thought, oh, okay, let's check this out. And anyway, we met this young guy, and Alan Trudinger, who passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. We, we all remain friends. I'm still real good friends with Lee and, and everything, you know. But um, anyway, so Alan and me played together because we could both play, and um, we said to Lee, well, you've got to get a drum kit. So, so Lee got a drum kit, and we formed this band. We were called the Horizons, and uh, we played we played shadows stuff and all sorts of things in like church coffee shops and all these sort of places wherever we could work, basically. So that was the start. And um, a little bit further along, I met Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Wayford. And he took over on the drums. Lee Lee was great in taking up the drums, but he wasn't a natural musician as such, you know. And Malcolm was a natural. He just started playing, and like we went, wow, <laughs> you know. Right. He didn't have a he didn't even have a drum kit, but he sat down at a drum kit and started like playing, you know. So eventually, he he became our drummer, and um, we just did lots of local gigs. They used to run dances and things, you know, back in the day. No, it wasn't like pubs and things. It was like no no alcohol dances, you know, for kids. Yeah. About about nineteen sixty eight you became professional professional musician. Um Yeah, yeah, around, also, around you, then, yeah. Yeah, and you also said you you worked in a bank and you had some various other other jobs. So what I'm curious as to what those other jobs were. Yeah, well, I worked in the bank for a while. I've worked a few little different jobs, but one job I went back to a few times. I'd worked there in my school holidays and it was a music store in Sydney called Nicholson's. And I think Harry worked there too, actually, listening to that was something I didn't know. It must have been there a similar time to me. And uh, and uh, I worked there when I was 15, but then I went back there when when I was about 18 or something like that. And I met a lot of friends who I'm still friends with, which is great. We were in the, um, the packing department in the, on the fourth floor. They used to, back in the, at the time, you know, they, oh, there was lots of country music stores and Nicholson's was the store they'd order all their equipment from, you know. And uh, my job was to pack the stuff up, to, to send it out to the stores, you know. And um, they, they had... Um, Oh, all sorts of guitars, like it was amazing, <laughs> you know. If you could get a bit of time, you'd sneak a look. They had these burns of burns of London Rickenbackers and all sorts of stuff, you know. But uh, I never got to plug them in, really. <laughs> <laughs> Just dream. <laughs> yeah. One day, one day. But it, one good thing about working there was that the um, there was a lot of people um, to learn off. You know, there was a a, a guy, Frank Holforth, I'm still good friends with him. He was a jazz guitarist and he, he turned me on to a bit of jazz stuff and he played something and I said, oh, can you teach me that? He says, no, you can get the music, you learn it and I'll come and tell you whether, I'll tell you whether you got it right, you know. So I got the music and I, I learned the whole thing and, and he helped me with anything I got wrong, you know. 
and there was another guy playing bossa nova stuff and there was all different people you know and, and you could you know it was, it was great for a young guy like me who you know i'd never met anyone who played jazz before or anything like that you know mm. so so the reading so um when you said he just gave you the gave you the music just try and learn it so were you trying to listen to listen by ear and then sing the notes on the on the page and I think uh, I'm not. Or ha- or I'm not a somebody... great. Re- I'm not a great reader, you know. And this was all. Co- it's a chordal thing. Chords, okay. You know, or written on the stave. You know, it, it, they didn't have the. Um, what do they call it now? Tab. I can't read tab even. I, I can read music better than I can read tab. I think. Yeah. Right. right. But but um but I, I'm I've never been a sight reader that could just pick up a bit of music and go through. I'm I'm not. It didn't happen for me. You know, I tried and I tried and I. Eventually figured there's other people who can do this a lot more easily than me. Right, I, right. But I still can read music and I understand music, you know, which is what I need. But um, yeah, I, I would have taken a while. I would have taken probably a month or something to learn this thing, and uh, it was pretty complicated. But I can still play it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Um, so we're we're. At- we're in the seventies now, and this this is around the time you met Bill, right? Yeah, yeah, about nineteen sixty nine, seventy. Yeah, yeah, I think. See, so yeah, probably seventy. Yeah, because I think I was just about to turn nineteen, which I would have done in nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah. So that that's um, you, you joined Stevie Wright's band then. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, we used that? to play wine bars and things, you know. Right. And Sorry. and what was yeah no no it's cool it's cool um and and what was it like playing with Stevie at at, at that stage in his career? Yeah, it was, it was great. It was funny, you know, because when I was young, the Easy Beats were like, you know, they were like the Beatles. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. but when I was playing with them, we just we just took it in our stride, which is yeah, kind of cool. weird, you know. <laughs> and we we used to have a lot of fun together. Actually, we, we used to have great fun together, all of us. You know, and Stevie later got into heroin, which is like shocking, you know. But but in the early days, we were just all buddies, and we had a great time. You know, real lot of fun. You know, living in the suburbs and all that, and going into the city. That and Bill lived in Paddington. You know, and it was all it's a whole different world. You know. Mm. Very cool. All right. So, what sort of what happened after? Um. After that, so was it Nitro? Yeah, yeah. Nit- Nitro yeah. was um, uh, Malcolm and myself and Peter Zeekin on bass. Peter played bass and keyboards, and we we were in walking distance from each other. You know, we could walk up to. We all lived with our parents at that point. You know, and. Um, that, uh, we started out. We we got John English was our singer. Do you know John English? Who John English is? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. So John John was our. I don't know how we met John. I can't remember now. But John was the singer, and um, we got some gigs, and um, we got the gig. At, it was a gay, a gay club, and um, uh, we we used to. Back artists, we could read a little bit, you know, we weren't good readers, but the fact that we could play rock and roll and read 
not like the guys who played in clubs who couldn't play rock and roll at all. They could read, you know. So we, we were right for backing people like John Farnham and um, the, the, uh, Normie Rowe and people of the time who were happening, you know, and we, we could read well enough to, to read a chord chart and do a good backing job because we knew most of the songs anyway. And um, John was with us initially, which he's an incredible singer, you know, and um, we could do all stuff. We really loved the band Free, you know, uh, with Paul Kossoff was one of my heroes on guitar, you know. And um, so with John singing, we could do Free and all that sort of stuff. But he'd gotten the gig with uh, Jesus Christ Superstar playing the part of Judas. So he eventually left and then Nitro became a three-piece. And we used to do all sorts of gigs. We, You know, that there was a lot of gigs back in the 70s. It was, you know, I know now, for, for, especially for bands playing original music, it's really hard. And we weren't actually playing. We wished we had enough original to play all original, but we didn't write fast enough, you know. And um, uh, what you used to do in those days was you you go to the import shops and, and get records that no one had heard and find good songs off them, you know. And, you know, I'd, I'd find stuff like Deep Purple and no one's heard of that band, not at the time anyway, and i get a couple of songs off that and uh, all these different import records that weren't even released. And and people, you know, you sort of you give the feeling that you were original because you were playing your own versions of other stuff, you know. And uh, it's interesting then you could play original music and get booked. Now yeah. it's like you've got to be a cover band or something like that, you know. Yeah. Which how was your tough. how was your um, listening taste? Well, were they changing? Who were you listening to? Yeah. Um, well, at the time. Well, like, I, sorry. I, well, I, I guess you would have been you would have been listening to. I mean, if you're getting into Deep Purple and stuff like that. Yeah, which, I think which free free like, yeah free was our. Free was a benchmark for us because they they had okay. a singer, but they were three piece musician. You know what I mean? Guitar, bass, and drums, and yeah, and and the economy they used to to you know like they'd leave the space and everything so that when the solo had come in, it could open up and everything. And and there's something about the way free play. There are it's for the band. You know, there's no there's nobody showing off in free. You know, they they mm. just you can feel this. They're all holding it in the in, they hold it back, you know, and uh, and it's big. It's, it's yeah. It's just I don't know how to explain it. So you can feel the immensity of it because there's the drummers holding it right back, you know, that no one's mm-hmm. racing ahead of the beat, and they they seem to be a, a benchmark for us. But but we loved all sorts of stuff, you know. We were listening to Small Faces at the time, but fantastic, and. Um, and the who and all sorts of stuff, you know. Mm. Okay, so we're on from Nitro. How long did Nitro? Nitro went to about seventy four around then, and uh, and I, I think um, oh yeah, what happened was um, Malcolm, the drummer, his girlfriend was really good friends with Marsha Hines, and. Um, and uh, she was looking for a, her first band. You know, she'd played with bands before, and um, but she wanted to form her own band and go on the road with her own musicians and all that. So, mm. 
And then this is after the popularity of hair and uh, she wasn't. Sort of- she was popular, but she hadn't. She had. I don't think her first song was out. Fire and Rain was the first hit, I think. And I don't think that a. I don't think that had come out at that time. It was just about to come out, maybe. But um, anyway, Sue, Malcolm's girlfriend at the time, said, "Look, Marsha's looking. You know, I said, you know, she'll give you guys a go and see if you're any good." And around about that time, like Nitro was kind of playing rock and roll and all that, but we were getting more and more interested in funkier sort of stuff, you know. And you know, there was Cool and the Gang and all this sort of re- really fantastic grooves, James Brown and all that, and. You'd hear it if you were walking through the city somewhere in Paddington or something. You'd hear music coming out of discos with really good funk grooves, and and for me, the rock and roll was starting to get a bit passe or something, you know. We and we we wanted to play more like that. So um, uh, we um, what would do for Marsha? We we thought let's ask Bill because Bill Ryland because he's funky. <laughs> and uh, he is real funky, and uh, and Peter, who was playing bass with us, he could try out as a keyboard player, and we tried out and we got the gig. So I think we rehearsed in Marsha was living in Bondi, and we we rehearsed in our lounge room, I think, and uh, it was just a really really good time. And uh, Peter couldn't do the gig for too long because he was. He eventually went into superstar as well as, as part of the orchestra, and uh, so um, yeah, it was great. We, we picked all songs what we really liked. We were right into the Average White Band and Rufus with Shaka Khan. And we had a really great repertoire, and uh, we just picked our favourite songs. and And one of those songs was talking about Midnight at the Oasis, which uh, and uh, that was. For the first time for a long time, I learned the solo, you know, because I'd always avoided learning solos for a while because I wanted to develop my own style. But there's so much going on in that solo that I, I learned it note for note. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was, that was a, a turning point for me. And uh, a little bit later, um, the, the Jackie Ozarski joined as bass player and he became musical director, and we were rooming together. And uh, I think something like the the Car Hotel in in Melbourne. Everyone used to stay at this place, you know, underneath the highway. <laughs> and um, and I said, oh, to Jackie, because Jackie had a great musical education, you know, in Hungary. And uh, I said, how does this guy come up with this solo against these chords, you know, because it had pretty complex chords, you know, it wasn't Chuck Berry, it wasn't a 12-bar thing, it was complicated chords. And and he sat down and he just explained how music works to me, you know. He said, well, you know, this, first of all, we find out a, a, a key where, where one chord would come from and where they vary. And it was like the penny dropped, you know. I never really thought about this stuff before, you know. I mean, some people do. I think Jim Kelly probably did think about this and, and plus he, he probably had lessons from jazz players and got into that circle of people quicker than me, you know. So once Jackie told me about that, you know, it's like, wow, what have I got to do to, I've got to learn all these scales. I've got to, I've got to yeah, well, i start with the major scale because that'll be the starting point. So that was kind of 
you know, I was on a bit of a mission to move ahead from where I was, you know. Mm. So how how much were you practising a day back then? Oh, well, I've never practised heaps, you know. Maybe three hours a day would be a max for me, you know, because normally you'd, you'd be going out and doing a gig for a couple of hours at least, you know. But I I'd, I, I do quite a bit of practice, I'd say. And, and, and back when I started getting sessions and things like that, I'd, I'd be playing a lot. You know, when I look back through my diary, you know, I thought, blimey, there was one gig when I was with Stevie Wright, you know, one day I looked at the diary and we did a gig at night in, um, uh, in the afternoon in Sydney. Then we flew back down to Melbourne and did a gig that night. Yeah. You know, nobody would yeah. do that now. <laughs> oh, you no, you wouldn't get through customs. Well, yeah, at the moment yeah. you'd be surprised. Though, like, yeah, that, that does, I mean, because I guess it's a lot easier uh, and faster to get through. No, I'm talking about pre-COVID, but yeah, to get yeah, through, yeah. To, you know, you, you can book yourself in on your phone. It's kind of maybe it's easier yeah. to, to actually, travel Austra- like that. Australia and, is is pretty quick, actually, compared yeah, to the rest of the yeah. world, actually, yeah. But um, it still surprised me that we were <laughs> doing t- two gigs in the one night. It must have been, I'm thinking it must have been afternoon or, or early evening. And uh, Right. Yeah, so... Um, but uh, yeah, right, so you, you've uh, the penny the penny's dropped and and uh, you're learning these new scales now. Um, had your sort of outlook on music started to change now that you'd heard that, or sort of started to understand that those different parts of the music, the jazz. Well, well, I started um, listening to more jazz. I'd always loved Mes- Wes Montgomery. You know, Wes Montgomery's you know, my ultimate hero. You know, as, as a musician and. Um, I'd always loved his playing, so I'd listened to him, but I, I hadn't – I'd copied little bits and all that, but um, I hadn't – well, I hadn't just – I just didn't understand. It was too beyond me, you know, and then once I got an idea of what's going on in music, it started to – I just started to practice and, and I I went to a seminar at the conservatorium. This guy called Steve Urquaga came out from America and – he, he had a system of uh, how he learnt scales and um, he he did it one way and I, his way was a little bit complicated for where I was at and I figured a way that would work for me and I just worked through doing, you know, little patterns all the way up. And then if I had to learn, that was, say, the major scale, then if I wanted to learn melodic minor or harmonic minor it was usually changing one note within what I already knew so then I'd go through and, and learn all those patterns and I'd you know when I was working with bands you know I'd I'd do that as a, a warm-up at home I'd go through all my scales and stuff you know, it might have been working with Barry Leaf or someone like that and I'd go out that night and I wouldn't try to force the scales and things into my playing at the gig you know but I'd maybe try some things you know but but what I, I did notice was because I was practicing all the different shapes you could come across you know I just started playing things more naturally and easily because your fingers are used to going to different places you know you're forcing your hands to your, your muscle memory into different areas so that that was a good thing okay so how long did did you stay with Marsha after Jackie? I was with Marsha from about 70, 
five on and off till 78, like mo- mostly on, but she took a break. We we did, um, I played on half of her first album. She did half in Melbourne and half in Sydney. And at that point she started going out with uh, Mark Kennedy and he, he was on, he took over on drums. Malcolm was playing drums before that. And Malcolm plays on one of the tracks, at least, on the record too. And then... Then we, Mark came in the band and we put a really big band together, which was awesome, you know, four brass people and mm. Snell on percussion, you know, you know Snell to, Seal, to, to Silver. Yep. Mark Silver. was on drums and we had two keyboard players and um, Jackie was on bass and they were all j- like jazz musicians so I was kind of like, you know, asking them stuff and <laughs> yeah, cool. And we had a oh, we had a really good time. It was like a family on the road, really fantastic time, you know. And um, yeah, you know, I just learned. You know, one of the things I, I I mentioned this to Richard Gorn was the sax player, and I mentioned this to him, and he totally forgot telling me, but it meant a lot to me. You know, I said I'd really love to play like a sax player. You know, like because sax mm. is monophonic and. It kind of, you know, it flows when a good player plays, you know. And I said, I, you know, how, how do you do it? And he said to me, think in phrases, the notes will come, you know. And that really meant a lot. You know, I thought, oh, right. So, you know, like not worrying so much about the notes but thinking about what you're playing, you know. You can't always get the notes right but just thinking in phrases. You're telling a story, you know. So so that, that was, mm. you know, like. You know, of, of all the influences, that there's people you know, like Jack Ozarski. He he really pushed me. He got me playing this uh, like a lot into the half tone, whole tone scale, which is a bit bit out there, you know. And um, mm. you know, he always in, he said, "Oh, everyone plays like that," you know. <laughs> and he pushed me a little bit further. And I, you know, I look, look back, I really appreciate all the little things. And and Bill Ryland too, you know, like we we live next door to each other, you know, and. Um, we would be jamming all the time and, you know, he, he had a little sort of technique of rhythm. I still can't do it, but <laughs> I can, you know. <laughs> yeah. It did influence me, yeah. Okay, so when when did you start? Because you, you played with um, Barry Leaf um, for quite a while at the at the Musicians Club yeah. in Sydney. So when um, were you doing that right from the start of that uh that run Barry had at the club there? I think uh, I started in, in January with Barry. Yeah, the first gig was in January. In and, 1978, um, yep. Yeah, I, I played with Marsha kind of right up until I joined and yep. um, I may have even done a couple of gigs after I joined, you know, with Marsha. But, um, uh, yeah, we, I, I can't remember. They must have called me up or seen me or something. I can't can't remember what happened, but it was four nights a week and it was like a concert every night, you know, yeah, the way it yeah. was set up. Ian Couch did the sound and all that and the, the lights were great. The, it was it was just um, it was amazing and the vibe was fantastic and we were playing the music we loved, you know, we, were, we, we loved the, the kind of funky sort of soul stuff and um, we were all buying those kind of fusion types type records, George Duke and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And um, and people used to pop in 
you know, they were on tour. The drummer, I think Harry told you this, Dennis Davis, who played with Stevie Wonder and David yeah. Bowie, yeah. he'd come and sit in with us. And um, and and people like Leo DiCastro would, uh, he, he'd drop in. Uh, yeah, people would just come up and jam. It was great times, really fantastic. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Yeah, so, and I, yeah I, I, I learned a hell of a lot, you know, yeah. With that band, and and because I, I had to, I kind of had to expand. Barry would say, "Play a solo," you know, and I'd start. And he'd go, Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. I'm like, oh God, you know. Yeah. So I, I really learned. <laughs> whereas with Marsha Hines, I'd had one, you know, eight bar, <laughs> eight bar solo or something in the night, you know, and suddenly I'm having to like just extend, and and I really learned to play, and I was kind of doing a lot of practice at that time, and. E- easing what I'd learned into the playing, you know, so it was a, it was a fantastic learning time for me. Mm. So yeah, the the Barry the Barry Leaf thing that that ran for a number of years, and um, you know, I'm sure you did tons of stuff sort of in between that, but but also during that time, um, you start up your band, the Imports. I was doing um, I was doing a bit of session work at the time, playing jingles and different things and uh, records for people. And um, I eventually got a, I was working at the Mansell Room, which is pretty famous amongst us older folk, venue in King's Cross. And um, I was working with uh, the Ron Barry Band and Ron was a great singer. And um, Mark Williams was the other singer in that band, uh, and Kevin Cooney was the bass player and Peter Figgis on drums. And anyway, when we um, Kevin and me hit it off pretty well. And around that time, I was working in there in the Mansell room till about four in the morning. You know, I'd get home like the sun was coming up. And um, the music was changing. It was like the punk stuff had happened and... Uh, and uh, New wave stuff, and the the police came along, and and suddenly there was a like I'd been into jazz and all this, and suddenly pop music, things like the police, it was suddenly like oh you you could actually be a good musician and and be in a pop band now, you know, like it it had kind of almost come full circle to how it was when I started, you know, it was like interesting again, and. Um, I started writing a bit of stuff and I got back with Malcolm and we were writing, we started writing all this crazy sort of stuff, you know, funny, funny sort of songs and uh, and we wrote a few things. It was kind of like prog punk, if you can imagine that. Right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I said to Kevin, I said that uh, I'm thinking of, I want to form a band, you know, with Malcolm and, and would you be interested in playing bass in it? And uh, and he was ready for a change too. So we started rehearsing this band, and um, where there was a kind of bit of magic between us, it it, it really sounded good. And uh, we had a, a manager helping us, Steve White. Uh, he's a fantastic guy and great manager. Did so much for us, and we were working like four or five nights a week, you know, playing all original stuff. And um, well, mostly originals, and you know, our kind of 
heavily disguised covers, <laughs> which we revamped totally in a sort of <laughs> new, wa- new wave style. <laughs> and, yeah, um, cool. yeah, it was great. Uh, our manager, Steve White, was also tour manager for Little River Band. So we got us uh, some gigs opening for Little River Band and um, we um, did a little tour of Tasmania and uh, they used to stay back and watch us play every night, you know. And I got, you know, we got chatting and got to know them and everything. And after the tour, um, at the, around about the stage when our band was falling apart, uh, I got an offer, would I be interested in playing with them and, and, you know, and I said, you've got a guitarist, haven't you, like David? And he said, oh, you know, it's not working out or whatever. And I said, oh, okay, well, um, I'll have to think about it. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sort of jumping in because I'd had my whole mindset on our band, you know, but uh, the the band, it, it just was falling apart in the end. And and then they called me back again. And I said, well, yeah, let's give it a go, you know, So sort of, I. I didn't know whether I'd like to be in Little River Band at the time. I, you know what I mean? Like I was into what I was into, you know. So so, so I went down and we had to play together and as soon as I played with them, ever, they were all really good players and it felt really good and I thought, oh, no, this is going to be great, you know. So that's cool. I, I wouldn't jump into something just because they were successful, you know what I mean, like if I didn't like it, yep. you know, so... Right. So um it, yeah, it came at the right time and um and then we we rehearsed and went off to we did a few warm-up gigs in uh up in I think Twin Towns in um northern uh, northern New South Wales. And um and then we were off to America, you know, and like I think the second gig we played to 40,000 people, you know. <laughs> we were opening uh, opening up before the Beach Boys and like, jeez. Right. So, how do you prepare yourself for that? <laughs> Knowing that that's come, like, yeah. from, like, I mean, you said you said that you had a little bit of time to kind of think about it before you joined, and then yeah. you started rehearsing. Did you have any idea what um, what it was going to lead to? Maybe in, not in quite. You know, I had cycle. played pretty big yeah. gigs with Marsha because Marsha's band, Marsha's band, was really big at the time, and and you know, we'd we'd. You know, we played on the steps of the opera house and all, all sorts of things, you know. But um, but I think, you know, like you, you sort of, you are, you get prepared in your head for this sort of stuff, you know. You you know, I always saw myself when I was learning as, you know, imagine what it would be like to play to big audiences, you know. Yeah, right. You know, okay. And all that sort of stuff. In fact, you know, it, big audiences, when it gets to 40,000 people, it's sort of ridiculous, you know. I'd, I'd rather play in a theatre or something like that, you know. There's more of a feeling of uh, I love to see the people right in front and you can still see some of the people further back and there's a real feeling of, a, you know, if you're, you're playing and they're listening and feedback, you know. But but it's not bad playing with 40,000 people. <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. Now, um. Like when when you watch you play, you've you very much move your whole body when you play. Your head, your shoulders, your arms. When you know when when you're sitting down, especially I was watching one video yeah. the, the other day, 
and you're playing, you're moving your arm so much that the strap fell off your arm, but you still keep playing. I didn't notice. And then I saw a couple, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> I saw a couple of Little Riverbend videos too, where you're just like you, you basically move all over the stage, right? Yeah. So where did where did you develop that? Was that just a natural thing, or did you think, well, I'm going to be playing these bigger um, stadiums now? It's time to put on more of a well. I've always, more I've of always a physical gone, show. Or I've you always like. That? You know, if you see my my brother, actually, we we move he in does a, the same. We move right. in a similar way. We, do. we play Absolutely. different now, but we both sort of. It's almost like we're going to fall over, but we're, something's holding us up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's a good workout. Yeah, man. it's it's just. Um, but um, I think um, you know, I think playing when I played with Normie Rowe, he always just said smile. You know, I still never right. really do, but it, it made an impression on me that I. You know, I'm not, you know, just here to be a mopey old person playing guitar, you know. Yeah. So so that made an impression. But uh, one of the early gigs we did, um, the band opening for us um, was a band called the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, which are a really big band. You know, they, they had a hit with um, Mr Bojangles was a big hit for them, you know. And um, and John McEwen, the, he was I think kind of the leader of the band, he he um he's a really nice guy and um he took my wife and myself out and showed us all around um Laurel Canyon and all the places where it was all happening and you know with all you know those bands like Crosby Stills and National or you know uh, so he took us around but he he spoke to me you know like at one of the kids he said oh have you been playing in little clubs all the time and I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I've been playing the Manza Room and all the different things and small stages. He said, you've got a big stage now. You don't have to stand in the one spot. You know, you're moving, but you're yeah. just standing. I thought, oh, yeah. yeah. So that's, that made sense. So yeah. so then I sort of just, you know, did what I normally do, but moved around the stage as well, you know, so. Yeah. Which was yeah. good for a band like Little River Band because they were always stuck on the mic singing, you know, so there yeah. was no one, you know, there's no one doing that. And it yeah. made made something for people to watch, you know. Yeah, because watching some of those um, like videos that I was watching, yeah, you're right. You, you, you're seeing, you know, the, the singers up to the mic and then by looking yeah. at the screen you're kind of off to the right and you can see you're moving, you know, you've got like a yeah. big stance and you're, it's just another yeah. A, a, yeah. another way for, place for your eye to go, you know. Yeah. Instead of just looking at three dudes singing into yeah. a microphone. So you know? so it works well, and it was quite it's quite natural for me, you know. Now I'm back in small stages playing in pubs here and things, so yeah, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, another example of you really using all of the stage was that that '88 Expo performance. Oh yeah, yeah. When yeah. with with with. Yeah, with Glenn Fry, and, and yeah. you're up on the, you're up on the kind of up on the podium sort of thing there, and then you oh, just blimey. came off. You came all the way down the front, across the front of the stage, Jesus. nearly knocking everybody out with the head sock of your guitar, and it was brilliant. Loved it. Great. <laughs> sort of feels funny when I watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so not long after you um, joined the band, John Farnham came into the band. Yeah, yeah. So, so what was and and where was this? This was obviously um, before Whispering Jack and and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Quite a few few years before, yeah. yeah, yeah. With him coming into the band, how how did the dynamic of the band change? 
you know, I, I thought he was fantastic with the band. And um, it's funny because, you know, you do gigs and people people know the songs and they like they, they he's a great singer so they liked it and you know they said oh the new singer's good he's he's a bit deeper than the other one he's actually higher you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. but but it, you know he he was a you know like we do these uh, live tv like he'd sing live on solid gold or something and people yeah. you could see the people working on the show they were looking at me blimey yeah. <laughs> it's incredible yeah. this guy you know he was blow, yeah. blowing them away. Yeah, yeah. I I watched a um a video yesterday of you guys performing reminiscing live. Oh yeah, and it was in a th- it was in a theater. And the video that I watched it had um I think there must have been two cuts of it. There was the the like a TV cut, mm. and then it changed from oh yeah that sort of pumped up audio to the to the raw audio footage. Yeah, I think. And and yeah. and there's also there's a you do a, a massive solo in that. Yeah. Towards the end, to, on the outro of that song, but I, I just, I was just drawn by John Farnham, eh? Just the way he, uh, the expressions on his face, and yeah, yeah, you know, he, the way he, like, um, signals to the crowd, yeah. and signals back to the band. It's just, I got goosebumps talking about it. You know, yeah, like, he was, he was great, and incredible. we worked together really well too. You know, we'd, we'd work off each other. You know, which was, it was great. Yeah, it was really good. I yeah. really enjoyed playing with him. I did a little tour for him. Uh, after he left Little River Band, uh, I did a, a about a month tour or something with him, for, with his band as a guitar, two guitarists that right. left and I filled in, and that was fun. Right, and this was before Whispering Jack. Uh, no, this is after. This is after. Oh, he, oh, right, okay. Yeah, after he'd left the band, you know, had gone and done his own thing, and then it, it, I, he, I was, I was free, so. Um, he needed a guitarist, so I went on tour with him. That was a buzz. Yeah. The other um, um, personnel, big personnel change that I want to talk about is um, correct me if I say his name wrong, but um, is it Derek Pellicci? Is that how you say oh, his yeah, name? That's it. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Good. Nailed it. And um, when when he left and Steve Presswich came in, now I'm a I'm a massive Steve Presswich fan. Yeah. And, um, you know, through his stuff through Cold Chisel. So yeah. I mean, because Derek was. Um, you know the drummer almost right from the start up to that point, yeah. and then having having Steve Presswich come and play. How was that dynamic? Yeah, well, what it was, was that like? yeah, yeah. We 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 had a few auditions and tried, you know, and we tried some really highly rated drummers, you know. Mm. But uh, Steve came in; he could do that the shuffle, you know. Yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah. it's the little things like that, you know. Like some people have got all the chops in the world. But they just can't do that shuffle, you know. Just yeah, it's got to swing, you know. That's it. And um, Steve was great. We we got him really well. That, that was that was a really, you know, it was a very creative time. You know, we, we David Hirschfelder was in the band, and he just got Fairlight. Now the Fairlight, you know what the Fairlight is? The, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And. Um, it was that was the instrument of the time, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, we were working on. And he, he would we were going to the studio, and he'd record. I've got a you know hundred year old mandolin, and he'd and he'd record me going, and then on the record, <laughs> the whole chord yeah, yeah. playing this tremolo mandolin part, yeah. Yeah, and awesome. and we'd all sort of go, we'd all rehearse around the fairlight or whatever, and. Um, 
And we we put all the arrangements together. It was really creative time. It was great. But the uh, the record kind of stiffed. We 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 got we kind of followed the you know the record company always wanted the band to be a bit tougher you know more what they called more album oriented stuff and there was AOR at that time meant album oriented rock and uh, right we went their way we used the producer they suggested went the whole thing and then that market kind of died in the ass you know and uh, uh, I don't know it just didn't work out. And plus we, yeah, we, we put the record out under the name LRB instead of Little River Band. That was a mistake, you know. Right. Thought, so which album was that? Was that? Um, uh, Playing to Win. Playing to Win, right. Yeah. But a couple of those couple of those songs were, were hits though, weren't they? Well, Playing to Win got played a lot, but it was never really a hit as such, you know. So, right. And it was a hit in certain it's, – it's interesting because in certain parts of America – it was a big hit, you know. I've sort of, I met musicians actually, you know, <laughs> who lived in, I think maybe it was Missouri or somewhere, you know, and and uh, mentioned that, oh, you know, like Little River Band playing to win. I said, how come you've heard of it? It wasn't a hit. They thought it was a hit where we lived, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. See, I, I was I was telling you earlier, um, I used to play along uh, to Little River Band songs to practice to when I was learning drums and the cassette that I had was the it was a greatest hits cassette and it had it's the green cover with the LRB logo on it I can't yeah. remember if it was called greatest hits the tape version had when the war is over on it as the last oh, track yeah. yeah yeah I hadn't heard Cold Chisel's version of when the war is over at that stage because oh, right. it was in New Zealand and wasn't really I wasn't really hip to Cold Chisel in New right. Zealand so that's the first version and that's the version that I learned and just got blown away by because, it, you know, it starts with the, the synth. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, John Farnham's vocal in that is just unbelievable. And then, you know, Steve yeah. Briswich comes in with, with with that drum fill. Yeah, and he wrote the song. To me, you know that? Yeah, I know he did. I did, yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't know it at the yeah. time. And yeah. then I came to came to Australia and then I joined a, I joined a Cold Chisel cover band. Oh, right. And, um. And that was one of the songs. I'm like, oh man, playing a little little river band song. And they're like, what? It's a chisel song, man. You know, and had to go back and yeah. you know brush up on my history of of Australian music. But yeah, that yeah. that was the first version of what it. You know, it's a lovely a lovely song. You know, stunning. I'd lo- I'd loved it before before Steve joined. I'd really loved that song. You know, and, and yeah. it's great that we recorded it. So. Yeah. So how did that? How did that come about that that song got re-recorded and, and, and put onto a Little River Band album? I think it was just an obvious choice for John Farnham to sing, you know, because it really okay. suited him, you know. Yeah. So, um, and, and plus we all loved the song, you know, so. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Steve was writing some good stuff, you know. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's a shame he passed away a few years ago. And, yeah, um, yeah, I hadn't seen him for ages, and I, I called him up, and um, we, we, you know, I was leaving Australia, and I, I, I said, oh, "We'll get together next time." And there was no next time, unfortunately, you know. Right. And we used to get on well. He was, he was a great guy. Yeah, and, I got to yeah. see him play live with Chisel uh, when they toured the Last Wave of Summer oh, yeah. album. Yeah, and uh, we were sitting. Um, Sort of off the side of stage, looking down on them side on. It yeah. was just great. It was just for for a 
young up and coming drummer to actually see, you know, see him play was just yeah. awesome. It's really good. Mm. Yeah. So, so um, no range. That was so. That was the last album that um, Steve Presswich and John Farnham. Yeah. On, is that right? Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, so I think when we were doing that, John was already it already started whispering Jack. So his his heart was gone to that. You know, it not not that his heart wasn't in the album because he, he he performs fantastically on on the record. You know, but. But he was ready to move on, you know. And we did one more tour and Steve had left at that point and um, Malcolm Wakeford, who I'd played with all the time, he, he did the, the last tour. That was the last tour with Farnham. We did about 12 gigs, I think, in Australia, yeah. Yeah. What were you doing in between? Was was the LRB thing a full-time, full-year-long thing or were you doing stuff in between? If we didn't work, um, if we didn't work, I'd be doing other things, you know. I did a few sessions and things. But the band came on off the road really after Playing to Win, which was before No Rains, and um, which is a bit of a disaster for me. I just bought a house and um, <laughs> finally saved up for a house. And not only did the band come off the road, but the... Um, the economy went into um, a really bad recession. Inflation went up, and interest rates went like to eighteen percent, and it was just ridiculous, you know. And I, I just, uh, I was just hanging on, you know. But out of it came a lot of good stuff, you know. Um, you know, when you, when you're in like, what am I going to do? Sort of thing. You figure out to do something, and and it can push you in different direction, and. Uh, uh, around that time, um, I started doing um, seminars, teaching guitar and stuff like that sort of that that sort of thing. A, f- a few workshops and things. I was playing um, some gigs with uh, Wilbur Wild. Do you know Wilbur Wild? Uh, yeah, yeah, from Hey Hey. Yeah, from Saturday. From yeah. Hey Hey. Yeah, uh, only from Hey Hey. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he he said, uh, you know, he used to call me up and say, "Do you want to play golf?" You know, he's a mad golfer. I said, all right, you know, and he said, uh, and then he called me up one day, he said, you want to come and play, you know. I said, what, golf? He said, no, jazz. I said, oh, I can't play jazz, you know. <laughs> I've never considered myself as a, a jazz player as such, you know. He said, no, you can do it, come down. So I joined, I, I joined his band and we had about three gigs a week or something playing, um, you know, jazz venues, really good players in the band. The drummer, um, Phil Henderson, uh, it turned out, you know, this is in Melbourne, and it turned out he grew up just two suburbs up from where I was living in Sydney, you know, and I'd never known him, never met him before. Right. And we got on really well, and he's a fantastic player. And um, he ended up playing on my instrumental album, New World Groove, later. So so that that's that was and when we played a lot of stuff together. And also I had another band uh, called Broken Voices with Graham Goebel, and he was playing drums in that as well. So that was kind of besides getting the chance to play with Wilbur and Wilbur really encouraged me, it got me confident that maybe I could play jazz, you know. I still don't consider myself a, a jazz player, but there's different ways you can play jazz, you know. And uh, um, I guess I'm more of a jazz player than most rock players, put it that way. 
and I use and I use all the jazz knowledge in my rock playing. So, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And 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 you were playing. You did some work with Renee Gaya and yeah, Aaron, and around that time and that well. would have been around this time too. You know, um, uh, the first thing I did with her, I think, was she was doing a show called Sing Sing to Me. I think that and Harry was there. Mark Kennedy was on drums in that. And I think Jamie McKinley, who also passed away recently, fantastic keyboard player, and he also was in Marsha Hines with me for a while too, you know. So uh, around the time I was working with Harry, Bruce and in Renee, Harry and me were doing a gig. I'm not sure if it was Renee or what it was, but someone came up at the end of the gig and said, um, would you be interested in doing Dr John? And Harry was already booked and I ended up doing it with myself Rick Grossman on bass and Malcolm Wakeford on drums. And and we we weren't actually really familiar with the music, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, but Dr. John was incredible. He was really patient and he more or less taught us the stuff. And by the end we were really, we were rocking, you know. It was a really good, I've got a, a desk tape and it's really good. So, um, yeah, that was a fantastic experience. And at the same time, before I went on tour with Dr. John, I'd rehearsed to go on tour with the Bushwhackers, so I, which is totally different kind of music. And I'd rehearsed with the Bushwhackers so that I could do my last gig with Dr. John and then fly to a place and do the, my first gig with the Bushwhackers. And, and I have to remember all the that repertoire, you know. So, And I was taking Tommy Emanuel's place in the Bushwhackers. And uh, previously... Tommy had taken my place. Uh, Doug Parkinson, I did some uh, recording with Doug and and uh, he'd wanted me to be in the band, but I, I think I was playing with Marsha or Barry and uh, Tommy took my place. So we kind of taken over for each other different times. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. The, the scene in Sydney back then was fantastic, you know, and I, I just, you know, I, I lived in Melbourne for a long time when I joined Little River Band from 82 until we came here in 99. But I never really, I, I, I got into the scene a little bit in Melbourne, but Sydney's where I grew up, learned to play guitar and got to meet everybody, you know. There was a, you know, a very close scene. Everybody knew everybody and everyone jammed together and it was a fantastic time, you know. That's, you know, what I remember the most. So you're starting to, like, after bit of financial disaster so you're starting to build yourself back up now financially. yeah so well yeah we got by you know uh, yeah we were getting by uh i i i started doing i did a there's a guy in, in melbourne uh ron lee he's got a music store and he's a really nice guy and he he said come and do a workshop for me and uh and um so i i did a i put a band together with um uh, the guys from Wilbur, Phil on drums, Craig on bass, and um, we we learnt say we'd do a Shadows song and a Wes Montgomery song and all different episodes through my journey as a guitar player. And I talk about guitar playing, talk about the equipment, and I talk a little bit about scales, how how I'd learnt stuff and modes and that sort of stuff. And at the end of it, you know, and I was really nervous, but when I got into it, I was digging it, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you do something like first time, you're always nervous, like having to stand up and speak to an audience for two hours, you know. Yeah, so, that's what they say, eh? Public speaking is one of the hardest, it is. most stressful things yeah. you can do. <laughs> so um, yeah. anyway, at the end, a couple of people come up and said, would you um, be interested in, in teaching something about the modes and all the theory stuff? And and I thought, well, yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't think anyone would be interested maybe, you know. But because I learned it so late, you know, I, I played for about 15, 16, 17 years without knowing any theory. I could read a bit of music, but reading music is not understanding theory. It's just understanding where notes are on a stave. So I figured if I could learn it, I could, because I learned late, I could probably explain it in simple terms to people and have an empathy for people that don't understand it, which most rock and roll players don't or didn't at the time. So I started, the only way you're going to be able to teach something is kind of write it, write a book about it almost. You know? So I started writing it as if I was writing a book and I put a whole um, basically six hours worth of seminars together covering you know, how chords worked and how scales worked against chords and and explained it step by step. And and I started doing those things. I'd, I'd call up a music store and say, look, if I, if I came to your store for you, you know, you could pick your customers who you think like it and they could pay a fee, I'll get some money and you get the goodwill and everybody's happy. And, and it worked, it worked well, you know, and, I still get people sometimes on Facebook writing to me today saying, oh, I went to one of your seminars whenever it was back in the 80s and I learned a lot and thanks, which is awesome, you know. Oh, great. That's awesome. All right, so, eh? um, so that and then from that I, um, I was doing um, a seminar in a shop in Melbourne and um, a guy there, Russell, he said, um, he said, have you ever thought of doing something around schools? And um, I thought, oh, no, no. I thought about it and uh, I, I, thought, I put a band together. And um, so Derek was in that band, the bass player Bruno de Stanislo, and then girl singer I was working with, Susie Ahern. She's a great singer. Anyway, so I put the four-piece band together and we called the show So You Want to Be a Rock Star. And I went to the Arts Council in Victoria and they got a tour together for us. So that was a lot of fun. Like a year or two later, there's a big change in the music scene where kids were listening to Hendrix and all the 60s stuff. I think it, part of it came from that movie um, Wayne's World. Right. And in Wayne's World they were, they were doing the foxy lady. With the, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it was a big kids movie with all the 60s stuff. And after that they started playing a lot of stuff on the radio. And by that time... I put a one-man show together for schools and um, I'd have someone come along and help me and play a bit of rhythm in one tune, but it was mainly it was one-man thing. And uh, uh, and I'd called it The Evolution of Rock Guitar and it was basically the history of rock and roll. It was an hour show and uh, it was great. went over really well. And I could do all the old stuff, you know, because I could ex- go through the whole history of rock and the kids were with me totally. They knew all the songs. They were playing them on the radio. It was, it was that time when radio went to retro. We couldn't have done that two years ago. It wouldn't have worked, you know. So, um, 
and that was good. You know, those are the sort of things that got me by, you know. And uh, plus the little tours like the Dr. John and the uh, Bushwhackers and the, session, you know, session work. And around that time was when we did the Glenn Fry thing, the um, the expo. We did the, the um, with, I think the single was out then, the single I co-wrote, which is uh, Love is a Bridge, and that was a hit in Australia. And um, we did the Expo 88, which is a real big deal. Now, I was nervous for that one, mm. I can tell you now. Yeah. And that's the one I'm yeah. running across the stage like a maniac. That was yeah. probably just <laughs> nerves. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was kind of a big deal because it was live around the world, you know. Yeah. And uh, to get to the stage, and it was in Brisbane, you, you had to get on a boat to go around the back of the stage and doing all that sort of thing. I was like, oh, blimey, this is what's going on. But, but you know, you get up on stage and you play your ass off. Yeah. So how did the Glenn Fry thing come about, though? Was he going to be in town and... No, they. I think they just, just sort of they want to make it spectacular, you know, and 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 have a Glenn Fry or somebody who was Glenn Fry, you know, just have something extra besides the little river yeah. band. So, and then uh, after, I guess what was what was sorry, what was it? What I watched a couple of those performances on on yeah. YouTube yesterday, and um, what's particularly cool is like you guys are all. You're playing. I mean, there's there was lying eyes. Oh yeah, it's one of the yeah. tracks there, and you guys are all playing that, and the harmonies were just. It's like I mean, because in in some circles, Little River Band like was called like the Australian Eagles, you know, with the yeah. harmonies and that kind yeah. of stuff, and and you know, just to see you guys um, playing that Eagle stuff and and doing those Eagles harmonies as Little River Band was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um... It was a blast, you know, and the, the harmonies were good. Always, they always have been. There's been a, a level that you know that, that you know the the band's always maintained a real high level. That's why the band's still consistent now, you know, and uh, people still rave about it because there's always this high level of um, harmonies, especially you know. But there's always a high high musician level too. So that's it. Yeah. So that's it. and uh, you know. If you keep that level, you can keep working, you know. That's it, eh? Yeah. You've got to keep the momentum going. Yeah. So after 88, after Expo, did that, uh, I mean, I guess being being live worldwide, that surely would have opened some more doors? We did some tours, you know, in general, but a couple of things we did that were interesting. We did a couple of Hilton tours and the Hiltons, uh suggested we do like we did with Glenn Fry that we get a, a guest artist to come out. And the first tour we did, which was might have been the end of eighty eight or eighty early nine I can't remember. Around around that time it was um uh, with Christopher Cross. And he he was a great match for the band. And it was great. And it was great chatting with him, you know, and uh sort of chatting backstage saying, what's your favourite record? His favourite record was Axis Bold as Love, Jimi Hendrix, which really surprised me, you know, because he's kind of very yacht rock sort of style, you know. And uh, so, yeah, and him and his wife used to babysit our daughter (laughs) so my wife can watch our show and (laughs) all this. They were 
they they were mad about they wanted to have a girl i think they eventually did and uh, i lost touch with him but i'd like i'd like to get in touch with him again he's been very sick too but uh, he had covid and yeah. really affected him bad yeah yeah i don't know if you have you heard of the inside music cast podcast it's uh two american guys and they um yeah they interview Sort of the LA session guys oh, and yeah. that kind of thing. Well, their their latest episode coming up, which I think is in a couple of weeks, is Christopher Cross. Oh, so right. I'll, I'll send yeah, you a link yeah. to him once it comes out, and you can have a listen. Yeah, yeah. And and that that will be him talking, you know, as of you know not long ago. Yeah, he's, he was a nice guy. It was good. And and then later we we had Warren Zevon with us, and uh, Warren, I love working with Warren. It's great. You know, it was kind of an odd. Pairing, I think, with Little River Band, really. But uh, I've got a desk tape of that, and it's fantastic. You know, I think we played really well, and he was great. And um, and after that, we um, we uh, started to tour America again. You you um you did a drum workshop with Chester Thompson. Yeah, yeah. Now I I love I love Chester Thompson. First time I saw heard of Chester Thompson obviously was was with um Genesis but first time I I I, I had the Phil Collins but seriously live uh, VHS cassette tape and there was Chester Thompson playing drums and Phil Collins singing obviously and then he'd go on to double drums yeah. and Lee Scalar playing bass and and uh, all those guys so I, I I just would study him in that tape so um yeah, what was that like? What yeah, was that it was, like it's hard to remember. It's hard Chester. to remember. I did that with Harry Bruce, you know. I think Harry did a cassette of that. And I don't know whether uh, Harry records everything, you know. But he, I think he put a cassette player on the floor and it was somewhere like in Melbourne in the town hall or something. And I know it was great, you know, and I wish we got, we got videos of things like that, you know. like, And it, those sort of things, we just, you know, we just jammed, you know. We just... You know, start a groove, and he'd probably start a groove of style, and then we'd join in. You know, and we did one with um, Carmen a piece too. Yeah, we used to do a few things. You know, a few things like that. I did another uh, workshop thing. I was at a music expo with um, John Entwistle on bass from the Who. Yeah, he was a nice guy too. Really cool guy. That would have that would have been cool because you know you you were saying earlier that um you know you're listening to the Who yeah you know, yeah to, to be to be there playing with, yeah. <laughs> with you know one of the most influential rock bass players of all yeah. time I mean that, that's something else yeah he was yeah. a really good player too I tell you he's really good oh yeah. yeah but you you stopped uh, touring with LRB in um, 2006 yeah yeah so what why did what 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 was that decision based on? You just well, initially, I wanted to um, record an album, and, and there was, <clears throat> with all the travelling, there was never time to to do anything. And so the idea was to get a replacement for me, and I'll take a year off, you know. And um, they got a really good replacement that worked really well, and I, I started to just uh, realise that. Living in Ireland and touring America was going to be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I'd have to go and live in America, basically, you know, to, 
to to have the stamina to do it. And um, and the band was going so well that I just stayed not working with the band. But I still do a lot of stuff, you know, record stuff for the band and write stuff and and all that. I'm still involved, but it it just um, I started to get into writing. And I realised that when I've got the space to do the writing, I can be a writer and, and it comes easy to me, you know. <clears throat> when you're playing all the time every night too, you're expending a lot of energy, which could be for writing. Yeah, right, especially if you're playing the same, uh, not not taking anything away from the material, but yeah. you're playing the same material yeah. night after night, which yeah. you already know, mm. back to front. Um yeah. So um, yeah, I think sense. it's worked out good. You know, I think I was just finding traveling very hard at, to keep keep at it, you know. You know, it's it's a lot of fun when you're younger. You know, everyone brings mixtapes you do and all the, listening to each other's music and, and all the fun that happens and yeah, and after a while it just it just changes, you know. Yeah, I gotcha. And yeah. Um you started a doing a series of um uh, interviews with famous guitarists in the US, and I went through and I watched all those trailers. Yeah, um, why? What? What happened? Why didn't that that follow through? Yeah, that, that could have ended up being that, a really was, cool thing. Yeah, it was. It was meant. The idea was we were going to do a, like a documentary on guitar playing. Uh, you know, the history of guitar players and all that sort of stuff. And I did so much research on the whole history of everything, you know, and I put a lot of work into it. And then we did the, um, we did all the interviews and they wanted me to play with, they wanted something a bit different so I would play with the people, you know. And, I mean, for me, just having done that is enough for me. It was, it was incredible, you know, just, you know, like, you know, uh, playing with Steve Cropper and you know, Reggie Young. Reggie Young's not that well known as a player but he's played on incredible stuff that, and just, you know, he'd sit there and he said, oh, I've played this for Elvis and he'd play the opening to In the Ghetto or, or something like that. And, and a simple thing, but just hearing him play, it's like, wow, you know. And he he played a Dusty, Dusty Springfield, um, Son of a Preacher Man. and On YouTube there's like a, a, a playlist of, of all those um, like trailers. So yeah, I just yeah. play and I was just listening to them all and then um, – Every now and then I'd have to go out of screen uh, to, yeah. to do something else. I think I was typing some notes for this. Yeah. And then you'd I'd, the next thing you hear is the intro to Preacher Man. Like, fuck. Yeah. It's got the guitarist from the intro to Preacher Man. So I'd go back into the video. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah. But the, the, what had happened, we, we went to a PBS in, in Washington and everything and they were they would have been behind the show. But the, there was one one problem is we sh- we shot it just before HD came out high definition and so it wasn't in the modern thing and um, the two brothers that were running it they there was a point that they didn't agree on so what had, what ended up happening is it just got released as hour long uh, me interviewing the guitarists and playing with them. so they they go for about forty minutes to an hour and they, you can buy them on DVD but. I, I should try and get them to just release it on YouTube or something, you know. I think totally, what, yeah. You know, yeah be, people are, they're people good. are I, still going to watch it. You know, it doesn't stuff doesn't have to be HD. I don't think. You know, it's no. Still, you well, know. it was going to if it was a documentary, it would have been. You know, it was a shame, but just kind of everything clicked over at that point. 
Yeah. But, what um, they could do is probably uh, like modernize the the font, the like the the intro part to each little video. They could probably yeah, well, the, the, modernize yeah, that. I mean, a the bit, videos but, are fine as what they are, but you know, I I think uh, if we'd have done a doc, the proper documentary, you know, it would have been you, you really. It's a lot of work, you know. You got to have someone to direct who really knows. BBC do this stuff really well, you know. It would have been ideal to go to the BBC. It was a good idea, you know, to to interview all these. I would love to, you know, interview so many players. I'd love to meet, you know. Then they're not so well known players. They're guys that just, uh, you know, you you know them because you've heard them on record. But most people would never have heard of these players. I mean, it's like it, it, it's similar in a way to you know this this podcast. I mean, yeah, I, get to, yeah. I get to sit and talk to the people that that I grew up on or inspired me or had something to do with my musical childhood. You know, just yeah, about everybody yeah. I've talked to um, has had is, is kind of linked to that somehow. Yeah, you know? and yeah. it's just awesome. It's magic for me. I love it. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of your other um, solo projects or band projects. Um, you know, sort of outside LRB, and uh, since you've since you've retired from. Probably. Yeah, I might just mention sort of how I got into Irish music, uh, maybe. Yeah, great, yeah. Um, in uh, 1983, uh, we were about to, with Little River Band, we were about to go on a European tour and uh, we we played a gig in England and um, because my wife's Irish, we, we just thought we'd, we'd do a little um, uh, visit to Ireland. We had a a week that we'd better go and visit her relations and all that. And before we left, um, I'd been doing jingles in Sydney for a guy named John Gillard and his wife was Irish and and he put me onto this record by a band called the Bothy Band, which is a, a big traditional band in the 70s, you know. And um, I'd never been interested in that sort of traditional Irish music at all, you know, I'm far from it, you know. And... Um, so because John was raving about it so much, we, you know, we were talking about what sort of music do you really like? And he, he said, this is it, you know. So I got the cassette and I, on the plane on the way to Europe where I'd be visiting Ireland, I, I put on headphones and listened to my Walkman, and, uh, which we had at the time, and put this Bothy band on and I was like floored. I couldn't believe it, you know. Uh, so much rhythm, but then I listen, so much rhythm, and there's no drums, there's no bass, but there's so much rhythm, you know. So that was the beginning in 1983. I got involved in, uh, back when I got home, I went on tour again to America. I bought a mandolin, started learning stuff on mandolin, Irish stuff, drove everyone nuts on the bus in America. <laughs> and uh, and um, and soon after that, um I think Ernie Rose, who was producing and engineering the Little River Band stuff, he hooked me up to do a session for Bruce Woodley from The Seekers. And um, and there's other session players on the record were the Bushwhackers. And um, and it was the record was called I Am Australian. And it was, you know, the Bush sort of influenced stuff and I played acoustic probably and a bit of electric. Uh, and um, anyway, I was sort of showing because I'd introduced Little River Band to this Irish stuff and we did a, an electric version of an Irish 
things off the off the Bothy Band album, which would lead into Night Owls, one of our hits, you know, and then this is like so um so I, I played the bushwhackers um this little thing of what I'd done. I said, oh, you, you know, realising I was probably on similar wavelength to where they were for this sort of stuff. So they said, Tommy Emmanuel's just left the band, you know, and would you like to do some gigs with us? So th- that came about. And uh, and I got kind of involved in that folk scene, you know. It was miles away from what I was and I played with those guys and guys in different entities a lot. And I did a little project a Celtic project where um, I got together with Dan Burke and Tony O'Neill, who were part of that band. Dan played fiddle and, and Tony plays fiddle, mandolin, everything, you know, banjo. And um, we started off just arranging uh, traditional stuff in a sort of a different way that people, you know, like uh, we'd write a different section to the song and add that in. And... Um, and then we got the guys from Wilbur's band, Phil and uh, Craig, Craig Newman on bass and, and Phil Henderson on drums. And um, we got a bit of time in the studio and, and put about seven tracks, some of them that I'd written and some were arrangements of traditional stuff. And um, and that, you know, like it has never been released, but that was a real, I was on such a buzz when we did that. <clears throat> You know, you know when you do something that you're really, uh, you're really proud of. You know, you, there's some magic happened, and um, and everyone involved felt the same way. So, so um, I'll probably I'll, I'll try and I just have to release it actually, <laughs> put it up on Spotify so people can hear it. You know, yeah, good stuff. So, so that that was um, me getting into Irish music. Then we moved to Ireland, and. In the end, at the beginning of 1999, and um, and when I moved moved here, Monday nights would be a traditional session down the pub, and I, you know, if I wasn't on tour, I'd walk up with my guitar and sit in on that. You know, this is winter time around the fireplace. You know, just musicians, yeah, cool. and then you play a few tunes. They bring you a pint, you know, <laughs> a pint of Guinness. <laughs> Great. And uh, so, yeah, it was, and I got to know a few people. Then I, I got to know, um, you know Noel Redding, Jimi Hendrix's bass player, had lived in this town for 20-odd years, I think maybe 30 years actually. And um, he um, he played every Friday night at this pub here. And um, I went one night and I, Noel was playing guitar at the time he he started out as a guitarist before he was with Hendrix, you know. He just played bass and he got the gig with Hendrix <laughs> as a bass player. Yeah, right. And, uh, which, you know, and he fitted, he worked, he was great. And anyway, so I talked to the bass player because Noel was playing guitar and I said, do you think Noel would mind if I get up and play some tunes, you know? So he said, no, it'd be fine and and. I um, had my guitar and plugged in and then I'd just go every week when I wasn't working in America, I'd go and play with Noel. And um, that's where I met um, Les, the drummer, Les Sampson, and um, we just played together for many years and when I formed my own band, the Kings of Kudos, Les became the drummer 
and uh, and we've just got a whole repertoire of stuff that I've written, basically. And we, we have a bass player, Mike Ganey, and we're a trio, just like the imports were and like Nitro were. <laughs> great, great. Do you, do you still, um, you, you were talking um, earlier about um, the imports and, and Nitro, you know, being small three-piece sort of outfits, you know, you've you've got that that sort of space. Is that are you sort of going into the Kings of Kudos with the same sort of same yeah. sort of mindset? Yeah, you have yeah. to, you know, yeah, you, you have to kind of you know, it's a drag in some ways. There's certain things you just can't do. You know, certain things require a chordal instrument to make them work, you know. Like if the bass is gonna be vamping on one note and you want chords underneath it, and then you want to play a melody over the top in a different area, it's just you can't do it, you know, but so you just have to yeah, do what works, you know. Yeah. And there's, so, there's, it, sometimes I can play chords and melody at the same time and make it work, you know. Going back to those early days, those all three-piece bands and, you know, having that space and, and also with Barry's band, you know, just being three-piece most of the time. And then yeah. going into LRB with, you know, being you were the third guitarist, is that Actually, right? Barry, Barry played guitar, so he was four. Okay, oh, he did too. Yeah. Sorry, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, and a great rhythm, great player too, <laughs> great rhythm player. Um, that was actually the last the last gig that I went and saw, um, which was a couple of months ago, was Barry Lee's band uh, at, at Palm Beach before the whole Northern Beaches lockdown. So that yeah, was really yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, what I'm saying is like, you know, you go into LRB and there's, you know, you're the third guitarist and there's keyboards and there's like all that vocal yeah, harmony yeah. and and did you how did you find your um oh what am I trying to say your your spot your your place to play like was that was that hard at first um, trying to find your space I or did know. they tell you yeah did they I'd, tell you they 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 sort of Basically, they when I joined the band, they wanted me to be myself, you know, and 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 play the way I play. But obviously, if I was playing a hit record, you know, like some of David Briggs' solos were really melodic, and you know, so um, I would learn the solo if, if it was a, a melodic part of the song. If it was an obvious improvisation, something like Night Owls, I would just improvise, you know, and the, play it in a similar vein, but it, it wasn't necessary as some songs, they're like a middle eight, you know. They go into a solo and they're a little melody. So that those sort of things I'd learn and they were enjoyable to play as well, you know. I probably put my own little twist here and there. Yeah, the fans get to know solos and stuff as well, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. You know, they, and, and then they that's what they come to expect, those, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I just uh, I just had to ask that. Yeah. So anyway, we'll go back to back back to Kings of Kudos. So uh, yeah, the Kings of Kudos, and we've just you know we just mainly do local gigs, and um, we've recorded. We've got a, we've got about two hours or at least two hours of original music, and which we haven't recorded at all. But um, we're getting there, and we we were lucky mm. enough together to get together a couple of times this year. And in times when it looked first time we thought, oh, we'll have a bit of a run because we'll be able to do gigs soon and that yep. didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. And then and then there was another time when there was a bit of another break. We could actually get to back together again. 
and uh, we we put down um, some backing, put down some some tracks, and um, one of them I've I've just put out, which is the latest one. It's called All Washed Up. So, um, and there's some video of you yeah. guys rehearsing that, isn't there? Oh, there is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And uh, I could mention also. Um, I got, you know, I was telling, I was talking about the Bothy band before. Yeah, a couple of years after we just moved here, we we were, um, I was doing a bit of session work for a friend who's doing an album. And the engineer, um, I walked in one day and he was mixing something and I was listening to something. I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's, it's Paddy Keenan. You know, Paddy Keenan used to be with the Bothy band. I said, the Bothy band, they're like, you know, like for me they were, the Jimi Hendrix of of uh, trad music, Irish trad music, and um, anyways, I said, "Oh, gee, I'd love to play on that," you know, just to be part of it. And he said, oh, "I'll run you a couple of tracks off, go and put something down," you know. So um, I, I I took it home because I had at the time I had the Roland hard disc recorder, you know, and uh, and I I put some. I, th- I didn't put acoustic on there. There's already acoustic on it. So I put some sort of ambient swells, you know, with echoes and a bit of electric guitar on it, you know. And uh, and I took it back the next day and, and Pierce, the engineer, said, oh, he said, oh, I, I, it's really good, but I don't know what, Paddy's pretty tra- traditional. I don't know whether he like it, you know. But it turned out um, Paddy heard it and he loved it and he wanted me to play on the whole album. <laughs> but I couldn't because I had to go off on tour. But... It was such a blast for me because, uh, and then quite often when he comes into town, he always gets me up to play with him, you know. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's like playing with, you know, like it's because I'm not a trad, you know, trad player as such. Um, it's like, you know, like getting up with Wes Montgomery or something and being asked to play right. jazz. But for some reason, every right. time I get up, everything clicks and it's magical, you know, and, and it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something, when I first heard the Bothy band, did I ever dream that I'd be playing with the the Elian Pipes player, you know? And I suppose right. when I heard cool. Hendrix, did I ever dream I'd be playing with Noel Redding? <laughs> right. It's funny how life um, goes, you know. What inspires you? Um, What's still what inspires? inspires me? Um, I just, I've, I feel pretty inspired I feel inspired by being in Ireland. You know, I think there's there's a certain musicality in the air or something. There's a soul to the place. It's it's been through some terrible stuff, you know, and you can feel it. But uh, the the people who have sort of risen above it, and music is part of that. You know, there's just something happy but really sad in Irish music. You know, and I feel kind of inspired being here. You know, and uh, yeah, it's. I think it's weird. You know, I haven't been writing in the last month or so. I've been, you know, just finishing up stuff and Christmas and all that. But quite often, quite often, I just walk in and I pick up the guitar and I just start playing something. I don't think about it at all, and suddenly there's a melody there. You know what I mean? I I don't know where it comes from. If I think about it, it, it won't happen. You know. And I'll have a little run of, of doing that, just picking up and writing. Then I'll put it down on whatever, 
now I've got the new microphone, I can use that, or the or stick it on the iPhone or whatever, you know. And then I might forget about it for a few months and then I'll go back and I've got a pile of tunes. And now I'm, I'm working with the flute player, Margaret Kennedy, and we have a, a duo called Dream Beam. Uh, that's kind of opened up. You know, we play all instrumental stuff and she generally plays the melody and I play it. It's good for me because with someone else playing the melody, I can play more intricate rhythm parts, you know. So um, having that has really opened up that I'll write things. I don't have to write things that I'm able to play, you know. I can write things that someone else can play. And and so that's, uh, yeah. So I write a lot. I don't I don't think about what style I'm writing in. I just write whatever comes to me, which is sort of good. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you're in a good place for it. That's that's really cool. Yeah, I enjoy it. I just, just enjoy going with what comes to me, you know, and then then finding going through it all and see what fits with what, and they could be different projects. Yeah. Well. Stephen Housen, this has been great, man. Thanks so much for for spending your your late Saturday evening with me and this early Sunday morning with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's been cool. We've been trying to trying to do this for a while, so yeah. it's good that we've that we've done it. And um, uh, I wish you, you know, nothing but good luck and success with um your, all your new music and whatever whatever other projects you've you've got going. And thank you for inspiring me. Um, you know, th- through the years, the stuff that I heard of you, and um, yeah, it's been been really great. Well, thanks, and uh, I've really been enjoying your podcast. I must say, it's, I'm really pleased to do it, and uh, I listened to my brother's one a couple of times now, <laughs> so I wouldn't go over the same stuff as him. But um, yeah, Jack's a great guitarist. I must. I must say, say that, you know, my, my brother's an amazing player and whenever we can, we play together, you know. And um, But he'll play something and I'll think, gee, how can I follow that, you know. <laughs> you know, listening back to Jack's podcast, I mean, you were incredibly inspirational on him, obviously, you know. So. Yeah, it's, it's really funny because I was around there once and he found a – he had an imports tape, you know, and he, and he put on – it's one of my, he put on a bit and my solo came on and he starts singing along with it. I said, how do you know this? He said, oh, I learned this back in the time. Blimey, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, he, you know, he's he's got his own style now, totally his own, you know, which is fantastic. But is, there's still a housedness to it somehow, you know. I don't know. It's not like <laughs> we play similar, but there is there is something more so in the way we move, I suppose. But, um, yeah. That's great. We have we have great fun when we get a chance to play together, though. It's really good. Yeah. So people, we're we're, we're talking about um, Steve's brother Jack Housden, and if you want to go back and listen to that episode, that is episode number fifty nine. So I'll I'll um, go check that out. Check out Steve's brother. All right, Steve. Take it easy, man, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Cigarette 
glass of warm champagne I guess it's time to button up Face the hurricane Yeah. 